Welcome. You are listening to Intentional Conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. Now, it does me great pleasure to welcome today's special guest co-host. I look forward to being in conversation with her. And um, her name is Alanike um, A. Mensah, and I'm so excited. And let me, as I normally do, give a formal introduction of um, Alanike. Alanike is a workplace equity strategist and executor rolled into one. She is experienced in applying an equity, diversity, and inclusion, EDI for short, lens to all aspects of workplace management. She has applied her organizational development and leadership skills in both the nonprofit and business corporate sectors, spending nearly 20 years leading local, national, and international organizations. Alanike has deep leadership experience in educational institutions, including schools and nonprofits and non-government organizations. Her experience living on two continents gives her a unique global lens that enriches her perspective. She is passionate about the workplace equity and leadership development. Alan Ike founded Mosaic Consulting about six years ago, where she offers training, coaching, and consulting to individuals, as well as institutions seeking transformation. She partners with clients to achieve greater workplace equity via strategies unearthed through facilitating complex dialogue and bolstered by change leadership principles. She is obsessed with building equity in the world, starting with the workplace. And so vodcast community, for those of you who join us week after week, you know what to do. I'm going to stop sharing my screen now so I can spotlight um, Alanike for the conversation today. Let us help her feel welcome in the chat by whatever words that you feel like will allow her to know that we are so excited to be in conversation with her. Um, Alanike, thank you for saying yes to our invite. Thank you for being here. And I just want to open it up and give you a chance to greet this audience in your own way. And typically what we like to share is information that maybe I did not capture from reading your bio, your credentials, and your accolades. And so uh, welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I love to be in conversation with awesome, wonderful people. I love your work. Um, and so thank you for having me. And hello, welcome. And hi, and hello to everybody in the chat, my chat screen is over here. <laughs> so um, I think you wanted me to share like things you might not know about me from my bio. Yes. Um, I love to karaoke. I love music. I love dancing. I love singing. I'm a choir kid. Mm. Um, I, I love plantain. Oh. And there was a fun exchange on LinkedIn recently about like diagonal slicing of plantain. Like if you're an adult, and you make fried plantain uh -huh. and you don't slice it diagonally, I'm gonna need you to find a YouTube video and figure it out. <laughs> it's like slice it diagonally. I love that. Um, school us. Yeah, school us. <laughs> so um, but other than that, identity, let me share some like intersecting identities because that's a lot of what we're gonna talk about today. And I'm sorry, I keep leaning in and out because I move a lot when I'm talking and, and so my lighting is, is shifting on us here. But um yeah, my um um, I identify as a Black cis het woman. Um, ethnically, I'm Nigerian. I'm Nigerian-American, um, which is a result of being born in the States, but then moving to Nigeria when I was two years old and being raised there. Um, Nigeria is in West Africa. 
being raised there until I was 10 years old. So from fifth grade on, I was back in the States, in Ohio, actually. So I'm a Midwesterner. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and so I've, I've been a very, I've lived a very hybrid life and that's another intersection, you mm-hmm. know, everywhere I went in Cincinnati was America. Once I entered my house, I was in Nigeria. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. that was, that was, um, that, that came with its own set of, of, um, uh, realities. Um, I am currently living in Ghana. So I just black sitted. So you, you, you don't, that's not in my, in my bio. Oh, wow. um, it was unexpected. That. It was unexpected. It wasn't planned. But last summer, we moved to Ghana. Now we'll be. I'm, I'm bouncing back and forth a lot. But my family, my daughter goes to school here now. My daughter, um, my husband works here. So this is our base, even though I'm back and forth um, for different reasons. Um, and yeah, I just um, if you if you follow me on LinkedIn. I just kind of also publicly announced um, that I now I, I identify as neurodivergent, even though I don't like that language, because mm-hmm. uh, I'm it's like divergent from what and why is that normal and everything else not normal? That's a whole another that's a soapbox, um, and it's very very new. So I um, exploring what all that means for me and my work and all of that, but um, it is already sort of helping me understand experiences that I've had that I didn't really have a place to put it to understand it um so yeah great that's a bunch of stuff anywhere else I think no I love it it gives us a deeper glimpse into you um Alanike and so I want to I want to stay there for a moment so first and foremost I think when you accepted our invite you were not in Ghana and so I have to ask what time is it there now it's 3 11 p.m Okay. Okay. Good. Um, I just wanted to make sure we didn't have to give you up at just this really ridiculous time oh, <laughs> to yeah, enjoy this conversation. And so <laughs> no, that's, that's great. And so you mentioned that you recently um, went public with um, this news of, of neurodivergent being part of the, the intersecting identities that, that you have. I have a neurodivergent son and I love what you just mentioned about mm. the wording there, how maybe it's not, um, you know, it's not maybe the ideal language that, that, you know, allows all of us to feel really good about it. And so I want to just kind of dig into that a little bit. And let's start with first and foremost, making sure that this audience is aware of what we mean by neurodivergent. Yeah, so a neurotypical person would be um, some, your brain works in the typical way that society would expect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's like a simple, like, um, <laughs> very simple baseline. There's, you know, I can, I can pull up my workshop definition if you want that, but that's what, that's what that is. Um, and so neurodivergent in the way that, in the language that we use now is saying that um, everyone else is kind of divergent from that neurotypical way. So this can range from um, diagnosis like autism, it's Autism Awareness Month, right? Yep. So like that's, I think, where people's mind go, go goes immediately. Um, but it can also range into like mental health, like anxiety, um, um, diagnosis and um, uh, OCD and things like that, that impact the way that you show up and interact and engage in the world. So, yeah. so it's, a, it's a spectrum. And so that's what it means to be. Yeah. Means your brain works. Yeah. 
So what got you to the point, Olenike, to where you felt comfortable um, going public with this? What, what about your story? Are, are you open to sharing that with our audience today? A little. I Honestly, I'm still in the midst of it, but, but yeah. yeah. Usually, I will overthink myself out of posting things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of us do. <laughs> and so, um, and so I, I just had a moment and I was like, just put it out there, like get it out of your head, put it out there. Yeah. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think it was, it started with just recognizing that I have um, extreme anxiety a few mm -hmm. years back. Mm -hmm. um, and I've always sort of known it because my mother has anxiety. My, it's prevalent in my family and we didn't have that language growing up. But as I came into adulthood, I was like, oh yeah, that's what that is. And I noticed it in myself, mm -hmm. but, and I always knew that, but I, about five years ago, I was like, actually, this is like, if this is what's normal level of anxiety, I think I'm like up here. <laughs> like this is, <laughs> yeah, like I didn't have the like actual real calibration of like, I don't, I don't think this is healthy or normal. And I started getting to the point where I was like Googling, asking Google for like medication. And I was like, okay, stop, go see a professional first. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how it started. It started with the anxiety. And I think just life being so complicated but five, about five years ago for me. Um, and, and the thing that put me over the top was my daughter had a complete emotional meltdown about a school assignment. And I was like, that's not a big deal. Why are you reacting so strongly? Mm. And I was like, okay, if mm. I don't go understand this for myself, how am I going to prepare her? for right. the rest of life. So um, I started going to therapy for myself. <laughs> I had always gone for relationships and other things in the past, but that sort of started um, started the journey <laughs> to, to get me to where I am now, so. Yeah, no, I so I so appreciate that. And I'm sure this audience and, and those who will hear the replay will will gain value from your transparency and your vulnerability and willingness to, to share that. I think part of, how we help others heal um, and support people through navigating the complexity of, of you know, these experiences that a lot of um, people are, are experiencing is to talk about it more often, you know? And so um, I, I never like to ask someone to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. And so Alanike, you have yeah. also encouraged me in this conversation to say, not only do I have a neurodivergent son, um, he was diagnosed with OCD. You would not know it unless you were in his inner circle and you lived with him and you saw his process. Otherwise yep. he, he presents as like, you know, anyone else. Um, and then as I was listening to you tell your story, mine was very similar in that I noticed there was this pattern in years of, I just do not feel middle, middle of the road. I, I will have these extreme yeah. emotions and it was starting to impact my family. And I remember one day, my son as a, a little boy, maybe like five or six said, mommy, why are you so angry all the time? And I broke, mm -hmm. I broke in that moment. I remember calling my mom and I was just crying. And I said, I don't know what it is. I don't want to be this way. My mom knew exactly what it was because she had similar situations. Yeah. So I'm listening to you talk about you and your daughter. And she said, honey, I know exactly what that is. This is what you need to do. And I go do it and all is well. And that was like 15, 20 years ago and now all is well. So anyway, you encouraged me to share my story just because you were willing to share your story. And so thank you. Thank you for that. Okay. Thank so you there's, for sharing your story. No, thank you. Thank you for inspiring me to do so. So there's so much to talk about today. I wanna to start with this general question. How do everyday people 
find their place in DEI work. And when I say everyday people, I'm really talking about the individuals that don't have the title of chief diversity officer, manager, or even HR professional, but just people that want to be champions of this work. They want to help foster equity, inclusion, and belonging. How can they find their place in doing this work? Um, start paying attention mm-hmm. to your surroundings, to the people around you. Um, because I'm willing to bet money, and if anyone wants to pay me, I um, can send you my my uh, bank information. That inequity is at work wherever you are. I don't care what environment it is, what what planet, uh, not planet, yes. because what planet you're on, what continent you're on, country, city. Um, Inequity and injustice is a part of the global story, the global human story. So it's present. So if you want to get involved and you're like, I don't know, I don't know where or how, I say focus on your immediate surroundings. Um, and, And then just like figure out where you have influence. Some of us don't have authority or power in the spaces that we find ourselves, but we may have influence. And so once you figure out what it is that's playing out around you and you can identify where you have authority if you have it um, or or power, another way of describing that, like power to actually say, we're gonna do it this way and then it gets done that way. Mm -hmm. Um, Or if you have um, influence on those that have the power and authority to say, we're gonna do it this way and then do it this way, that's your starting point. Um, And then I think the other thing that that I'll say is that you definitely don't need to have a title other than being a human being and wanting to see greater humanity, like be a thing. I so love that. Um, That is a message that I amplify as well, because my experience has been that there are a number of people that if you were to engage them at their core, they can certainly articulate the value of diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging. But that does not translate necessarily into their actions and that they're passive about it. And so in my mind, I feel like that's such a missed opportunity if we don't encourage people to realize that this is not about having a title or a position. It is about whatever sphere of influence that you have, which could be in your home, your communities, and the workplace with your team. And so don't sit on the sidelines because you're waiting and expecting someone else to own this work because this work belongs to all of us, all of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I also like to tell people to just start asking questions. Yes, exactly. Curiosity. Especially if you're new to this, don't show up with answers. Some We've been in this for years and we don't have all the answers. We have some answers. Still learning. I think. Yes, we're still learning every <laughs> day. We, right. Um, and so I talk about like carrying my bag of questions everywhere I go. So take that bag of questions everywhere you go and start asking different questions. There's a great quote by, um, I posted about this recently too, Um, Dr. Dafina Lazarus Stewart. I hope I I got that right. Um, But it's basically like diversity asks this question, equity asks this question, Mm. right? Inclusion asks this question, um, justice asks this question. And I use that quote a lot in my workshops because I'm like, I've given you all these frameworks and tools, but if nothing else, take this quote and start asking these questions everywhere you find yourself as oh, a starting point. I love that. I'm not sure if you shared it on your LinkedIn or not, but I do know that in the chat, we shared your LinkedIn because it, it sounds like something that we all could gain value by seeing. I often say that I think just as society, 
we tend to make more definitive statements than we do ask very awful questions. And so I love that amplification of this curious nature that I think that we all should be showing up with um, in every space so that we are always learning and and we're always listening and we're listening to learn and not just to be able to respond. that's That's so incredibly important. Okay, so I wanna go to the next question. Why is it important to integrate DEI into traditional management and leadership development training? And how do you do that within your organization? Okay, this is one of my favorite um, topics to talk about because, again, if you start asking certain questions about the traditional um, uh, management training or leadership development trainings, um, you start to realize how, how limited those um, trainings and those programs really are. Um, and so in, in preparation for this question, um, I went, so I have a, a change management certificate from Cornell, like the Cornell graduate program yes. or whatever that, that is. Um, so I was like, I wonder what their leadership training program topics are. <laughs> I can use that and riff off of that, right? And I'm not, this is not a dig on Cornell. I haven't taken the leadership certificate courses. Maybe they weave in equity and justice themes into those those trainings. I have no idea if they do great. Um, If they don't, then they should, which is is the whole... Um, uh, the whole the, the whole point of 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 this the stance, right? And so when you think about, let's take um, um, communication, for mm-hmm. example. This is this is one. It was it was on their list. You know, mm-hmm. executive communication. You know, communication yeah. com- inclusive, um, not inclusive. Um, um, communicating for effectiveness. You know, all of these mm-hmm. <laughs> topics, yes. right? But I have never seen or been in, and I've been in a lot of, as a manager and and an organizational leader, I've taken a lot of these trainings. I've never seen any of these trainings talk about microaggression, Mm. verbal microaggression, and when that happens at work and how as a leader to hear it, because I know what it is, right? Because I have a lived experience, but if you don't, you might not even catch that. Someone just said something that's a microaggression in the middle of delegating a task or discussing a project or discussing a client, right? So w- w- if you're having a, a communication course or, ta- or um, um, uh, a lesson where you're not talking about microaggression, right? You're not talking about cultural differences in communication. You're not talking about neurodiversity and how people communicate differently, even like for that, um, from that perspective, then, what are we really talking about? <laughs> the, communi- all, the, the range of communication is this wide and you've only like given us a slice um, yeah. out of all the different things that show up in our communication in the way that we relate to one another. Um, and so that's just an example of like, I wanna see management trainings and leadership trainings that after we get through giving and receiving feedback and delegating tasks and all these other topics, um, first of all, um, equity and justice and, and uh, microaggression and all these other things should be woven into all of that as appropriate, but I would like to see them also get some shine. And let's talk about what does that look like so that leaders are actually prepared to hear and then respond. Because what you're, what you're doing, which is the case with just equity in general, like equity in the workplace in general is um, there's, there's like a, um, 
a hidden, <laughs> you know, sort of, um, what is it, puppet master, you know, just sort of like sabotaging you and you don't even realize it. You're like, oh, well, I had that conversation with so-and-so. I was talking to a client recently that said, our leaders who are mostly white um, are not giving feedback to their people, to their staff, their direct reports of color because the organization started talking about equity issues. I was like, what? What? Yeah. This is so commonplace for me. This is so commonplace for me. So I, it resonates because I hear that a lot as well. And, and what I appreciate about what you're sharing, Alanike, is that, you know, we started this conversation thinking about leadership training, traditional management training. If you are a people leader, um, and especially if you are in that, that C-suite level of leadership mm -hmm. where you really are setting the tone and, and ensuring mm -hmm. that the systems and the policies and the practices are conducive for everyone to have full opportunity for success, then when it comes to that leadership management training, and I, I use the mm -hmm. quotation marks there because those in this community know that I talk about this quite often. I don't like the word training. I think it sounds like a destination. It's more about learning and development experiences yeah. that are ongoing yeah. and we're continuing to yes. build but let's just use training for the sake of this conversation. Then I love the reframe of instead of us always trying to label DEI training or learning and development as DEI training or learning and development, it's just leadership, right? It's just leadership. It and is. Yes. It and is. So it's I, just taking your leadership from siloed to yes. expansive. I get you know? so excited when um, a call comes through or an inquiry comes through and the ask is we're doing a leadership retreat or, uh, you know, a leadership, you know, special, you know, opportunity for training and learning and development. And we want to make sure that DEI is threaded throughout the whole, the whole day, right. the whole experience. That is music to my ears <laughs> because yep. the first thing it says <laughs> to me is you get it. You get it. Yes. Yeah, yes. so I, I, I appreciate yes. what you're sharing. Yes. Um, something else that struck me is when you said that a number of your um, your experience has been that there are some leaders who will refuse to provide that constructive feedback mm -hmm. to direct reports that are, are maybe professionals of color. And I hear that a lot. I even hear trepidation among individuals that may be a sponsor, or like a formal sponsor, or even a mentor to people of color, because they fear that if I really am constructive and I provide the useful feedback, it may come across as maybe now is steeped in bias or that I'm you know, discriminating. And so they shy away and then guess what happens? They don't provide any feedback at all. And then it perpetuates yeah. this cycle of people being stuck and not having these opportunities for upward mobility. And so we have to address that. What is the way in which you help coach Absolutely. and counsel your clients that may bring that type of challenge to you? What should those leaders do to get um, themselves more comfortable to be able to provide that great constructive feedback and coaching and mentorship to persons of color? Mm -hmm. um, to embrace messing up. Mm, that's good. Yeah. You know, if you're not, if you're, if you're someone who hasn't lived in a multicultural setting, and now you're in the workplace, which is oftentimes where it happens, maybe sometimes in school, in, in, in um, college, but you get to the workplace, you move to you know, a big city and it's like, whoa. <laughs> um, so maybe you, have, you don't have practice you know, with cross-cultural, like cross-racial, cross-identity you know, conversation with people. And so you might be in this role where you're giving um, feedback as a manager or as a mentor. 
um, and you're afraid that you're going to mess up, mess up, figure out what to do when the mess up happens. Right. Yes. That's the only thing. And what I, what I tell people when I'm um, coaching people, managers or direct reports is whenever you're uh, first building a relationship with one another, a manager and a direct report, have a conversation about your relationship. Talk about the best manager you've ever had, the best direct report you've ever had. What did you like about them? Because once you start having that conversation, you'll be able to learn how they like to hear good news, how they like to hear bad news, how they like to celebrate, how they don't like to celebrate, how do they like to receive You learn all all of these things. And if that is a scenario where you feel like um, because you're holding different identities, racial or otherwise, and that might be a dynamic, name it and talk about it in a way that says, hey, I just want to, you know, build some trust here as we continue to have this mentorship relationship or, or whatever and say that um, I'm going to give you some feedback and I'm hesitant that some of that feedback may come across biased. And it might be, frankly, your feedback might be biased or because we work in the society and, you know, in a, in a white dominant culture in our workplaces or whatever, the advice that you're giving someone to succeed might actually be biased, but that might be the thing that it requires to to excel in that environment. So if you're able to tease out those elements and say, this is what it's going to require for you to move to the next level here, but is that good for you? Like, is that, think about whether or not that's what you need, because maybe what we need to be talking about is how to get you out of this workplace, wink, wink, and get you in a safer environment. Like the the best mentors and leaders that I've had have been able to care about me and my Mm -hmm. development um, first, right? And if they were able to help me within a particular organization and we could have conversation about how messed up some of the things are here, but we know we have to play the game to climb the ladder, like that's that's rich mentoring, right? That's 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 the kind of mentor and sponsor that I want to have. That's like, I see you. I see the struggles that you're having here. I want to help you with that. I see the struggles that um, you're going to have. And we can talk about that. I love that. And, that and I might mess up and step in it sometimes. Call me on it. And let's talk about what we're going to do when that happens. You know, that permission to have that, that two-way conversation to make sure that the relationship is effective in, in reaching the ultimate goals that, that both parties seek. And so I love that. And it's like you said, um, you know, don't be afraid to make mistakes. Don't be afraid to get it wrong. Um, but I think it's all about how we respond when yeah. we, you know, those behaviors or those actions are called in, we have to fall forward. What are you going to yeah. do now to make sure you are course correcting for the future? And so that's such sage advice Absolutely. you shared with us. Yeah. So I want to, I want to talk now about your global experience and childhood. How has your global experience shaped how you view the DEI work and, and how in which you serve all of the, the clients that you have the, the, the privilege of working with? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I I remember the first white person that I ever saw. I mean, I don't remember their name or anything. Yeah. But you but remember the experience, yeah. I remember the experience. I was standing in front of my house playing with friends and this guy walks by and I just, this was in Nigeria. I was just like, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> they make them like this? You know, like that in my like six-year-old mind. I was just like stunned, right? Um, and so that's the background, you know, I was born in the States, but I have no memory of that. Obviously I was two years old when we left. 
Um, so being raised in a country where everyone looked like me and having that very specific memory of like the first white person that I saw um, just tells you like how I, did, I didn't have to think about, like I was a girl, I was a tomboy. I was getting in trouble all the time because I couldn't keep my mouth quiet, like shut. I couldn't be seen and not heard and all, all that. Um, but I would have never told you that I was black, right? Because it wasn't a thing in my consciousness being yeah. in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. The faces on the billboards look like mine. The faces on the money look like me, right? Now, fast forward 40, uh, 30, 40 years to now, colonialism and the impact of that is definitely very present. And my adult eyes can see that even though we all, we are, we're, we're not all black, but you know, most people here are black. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a child, I didn't have any of that in my, in my, um, in my awareness. And so moving to the US when I was 10 and then moving into like, you know, adolescent development phases and, and all of that, and um, being in different pockets of American culture, I was literally, so like I told you before, when I entered my home, I was Nigerian, but we also had like a Nigerian fellowship group. So all the Nigerians in Cincinnati gather and still do (laughs) and have an organization. Um, I attended a predominantly like 99.9% white church for a while because my dad and the pastor got very close. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're still actually very close with that pastor and his um, uh, his family. But then my elementary school principal was like Afrocentric black woman. And we got very, very close with that family. So we would go spend Thanksgiving at this traditional black family, like in the black neighborhood. We went to the, we all actually also switched churches and ended up going to black church. So like my experience is literally, I'm, I live at the intersection of difference. Like my whole life has been in this space. Um, and also just moving um, into a new culture as a 10 year old, you know, fifth and sixth grade and, and middle school, um, I was very comfortable and I, I don't have a concept of like who was popular in Nigeria, but I was fine. Like it wasn't a thought, I wasn't on the margins. I came to the US and I was on the margins. Like it was like, okay, mm-hmm. you know, I thought I wasn't, I, my personality changed. I became a lot more introverted over time. Um, I became very increasingly observant about what was happening around me. There were a lot of experiences that I didn't have language for that I have language for now. And so all of this experience just kind of cultivated in me always feeling like I wanted to fight for the underdog, right? And so as I went to college and um, got into my career, that's what it was all about. You know, I was majoring in business marketing and my senior year, I was like, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to go change the world. <laughs> so I did an AmeriCorps program in DC and I ended up spending the biggest chunk of my career in the nonprofit space. And then the last little stint of it before um, uh, my consulting uh, work was um, was back in corporate. So mm. no, great. definitely has shaped my, my perspective. My wow. personal life experience is why I'm here today doing wow. this. You mentioned AmeriCorps and I have a lot of fun experiences yeah. working with um, AmeriCorps vis- Vistas. And so, you know, I, I, I appreciate oh, that. Really? Oh, really? Awesome conversation. Cool. Yeah. So you said something yeah. that I think should make its way to a t-shirt. So I'm going to ask someone to put it into the chat, but because somebody make this you t-shirt. Know, t-shirt. <laughs> Live at the intersection of difference. 
live at the intersection of difference. You know, as you were talking about, you said, I live at the intersection of difference and you were going through all these different scenarios and experiences. I think that Mm -hmm. that's what helps us to build that cultural intelligence and that cultural humility and to be so much more open to human difference. And so I believe that everybody should have that as their mantra. Yeah, live at the intersection of difference. So I, I love that. So my, my colleague has placed into the chat that we're soon going to turn to your questions. And I want you to know that we have a couple ways in which we're going to do that. For those of you who are feeling emboldened to ask your question um, live, we would love for you to be able just to raise your hand and we will call on you and we will spotlight you and allow you to unmute yourself and to share. But if you are here just in an auditory capacity and you prefer to place your question into the chat, you can do that as well. And we will make sure that we bring that to the conversation. So I'm going to go to one more question before I We'll open it up to see if the audience has questions. And if not, y'all know I have many more questions because I'm really enjoying this conversation. But um, I want to talk about belonging. I am big on centering belonging in this broad conversation of equity and inclusion because it really truly is the outcome. And this audience has heard me say time and time again that it is hard for any person to show up at their best in any environment if they are always questioning whether or not they belong. So I believe in belongingness and I know that you do as well. I understand, Alenike, that you have a belonging survey and there's a tool and a service that you are going to be launching relatively soon. And I want this audience to have the ability to understand what this is designed to do. And so please share with us. Yes, so when I, um, I was, a, I was a, what is it? I was working nine to five in my day job and working five to nine on Mosaic <laughs> for a while before I went full-time with my business yeah. um, as many consultants do. Yes. And um, when I went full-time, um, and started doing um, equity work in organizations from the outside. I called myself I, an internal consultant before then I became an external consultant. Um, I found that I could not find a belonging survey tool that gave me what I needed. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I needed a tool that was grounded in research, not just let's put these 20 questions together because it's gonna, it's, I mean, 20 questions together about equity and belonging will tell you something, right. but I didn't just wanna gather uh, information for information's sake. I wanted to know exactly what it is that this information will tell me based on what we know about our workplaces, about organizational design, about human psychology um, and human behavior, all of that. So I went and I basically built a framework (laughs) and then I designed a survey based on that framework for myself that had four primary dimensions and then a fifth dimension that was really about culture and climate. Um, And this is what I've been using in our our audits as part of our bigger packages. So when we do a full workplace equity audit, we're looking at the systems, the policies, procedures, and practices in a workplace. We're looking at HR personnel, people, whatever you call it (laughs) at your job. We're looking at that HR function. um, And what are the policies? What are the practices? What are the tools that you're using? So we're looking at the bones of the organization, but we're also gathering information from the people that work there about how they feel, what are their experiences. Um, And we're doing that across like 10 to 15 different identity markers so that we can disaggregate the data and say, we're seeing gaps that are bigger with this people people group versus this people group. We can do intersectional analysis. Like it's amazing 
you know, to toot my own horn a little bit. And everything I saw online was just like, uh. <laughs> so I, I was like a, 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 a mad scientist, like research. I read yeah. all the studies and, like, I, and I created this thing. And it finally dawned on me last year that if I just take out that belonging survey part, it could be useful to other consultants like me or DEI leaders that are inside of organizations trying to figure out where to start. You know, everyone wants to start with unconscious bias training. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. It was, it didn't exist. You saw a need for it. You created it. So I would love to talk offline with you further about that because I do think it could be an incredible tool. And, um, and so, yeah, keep, keep us, keep us posted. We want to, we want to, once it's available and it launches, we would love to. Yeah. We're wrapping it up. Um, right now I have, um, we're, my team is working on it. I have a data analyst that would do the analysis and the reporting. And so if you're a consultant inside or outside of a workplace, yeah. um, you'll get access to the survey um, for your people. The other benefit of having an outside tool is your people can be more honest. Um, oh, we are we have we are GDPR compliant. So if you're a global organization, I have a data privacy lawyer. We got that. We're on top of that. <laughs> um, and so and you can get a report that gives you real information. Um, so beyond the five dimensions that I mentioned, there are different aspects that we can drill down into. And then there are different layers. We can look at manager perceptions, leadership perceptions, HR. Like we can, it's just really robust. Yeah. Um, and so please um, sign up on, I, I guess, sign, get on the um, website and uh, sign up for our newsletter because once, once we launch it, launch it, we'll definitely send out um, an announcement. Yep. And I, if we haven't already, I'm sure that the team is working on placing your um, website into the chat so we can have that. One of the biggest things that you said for me, which I was sold from the beginning was disaggregation. I think that's a step that so many people miss. It's not enough to look at just the aggregated totals. What, cause it tells a different story once you disaggregate it by certain totally communities and populations. And so that is the story. That, that is the <laughs> story. You're, we're speaking that research language. And so I, that definitely resonated yeah. with me. Okay, so now it's time for our audience. If you have a question right now, feel free to raise your hand or maybe just go ahead and unmute yourself. Um, Ursula, I see your hand is up, so I'm going to spotlight you. Thank you so much. Feel free to unmute yourself and share. Yeah, so good morning, everyone. Hi, Dr. Nico White and Olin Kay. I'm so excited to be here. I do have a question. So how do you help an organization realize that although they appear inclusive and diverse, with um, different social groups that is not directly reflected in their leadership roles. So our seniors, directors, executives, VPs, they're all one color. And they think they're either white men or white women. And they think the diversity piece would be the because there's women on the board. That's where they highlight the diversity piece. So how do you have that discussion to Bring, bring that forth to let them know that it's not maybe as diverse as they think that it is. Yeah. Great question. Um, there's a meme that was circulating online a while ago that's like, you know, a company says they're diverse, but everybody at the top looks the same with like one yes. woman that's white and they're all the diversity is at the bottom. Um, you know, hierarchy, uh, the, the bottom levels, you know, of the, of the leadership level um, hierarchy. Um, I... I think they know, but <laughs> they know. They know that that's not real diversity because we all understand how power works, power dynamics. So if you're not sharing power, 
which means your leadership levels are also diverse, not just at the you know 10,000 foot view, but like once we drill down into the layers of leadership, power sits in um, management, right? And leadership and senior directors and directors and, and, and you know the CEO and C-suite is one level, but then the board is the next level up, whether you're a nonprofit um, or in business, right? So, or corporate. So, um, I, I think, I think people know what they're doing, even if they're not articulating it. Um, and a lot of times I see leaders who um, don't know what to say because they're like, well, no one is quitting and no one is retiring. And are you saying that we should fire people? Like, how are we going to get it more diverse up here? Um, and the conversation I usually have with them is, um, well, you can do it. There's a lot that you can do to look at the um, uh, trajectory of careers of folks inside your organization. There's a lot that you can do to look at where people are falling off and why that's happening. If there's an issue, I was um, working um, some somewhere. I don't want to call them out <laughs> explicitly, but um, there was a pipeline survey that we did, and basically we were able to figure out at the, the to the level in the leadership organization where all the people of color were falling off, like 95%, right? It's like, huh, what's happening there? So now we can look at what are the processes and procedures for promotion, right? Who's, who's deciding who gets past that level? And what kind of uh, resource, how do we need to resource them? How do we need to equip them, train them, coach them, you know, give them different processes to follow? How do we need to hold them accountable? Because something is happening at this level that is keeping people from being able to move up and, and impacting our diversity. This was for an organization, organization that actually had um, folks um, across racial groups and gender, that it was race, a race and gender study um, that were moving up and then leaving to, to get into higher ranks of leadership. And I was like, what's going on here? Um, and so that can be helpful because then with that kind of exercise, they can have specific strategies to try to address the problem. Um, so there are things that you can do it systems-wise to find out what's happening, to find out the data, the information, and then address it. Um, but there's also mindset work that has to happen. And that's where it's kind of like depends on who yeah. who the power brokers are, right? And if they're wow. really ready to share power or if they're all talk and no walk, that's a yeah. whole nother. No, I'd like to, <laughs> I love your commentary, Alanike, and, and thank you so much for the question, Ursula. I'd like to lean into that a little yeah. bit more because um, what I would add is when you set the mindset that really struck me, because I think mm -hmm. that first and foremost, we have to help them to see that if they are an organization that really is committed to deepening their commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging, while optics is not everything, optics certainly matters because your credibility becomes placed into question if people cannot see evidence that you are exercising rigor and due diligence around trying to create opportunities whereby there could be good representation of different demographics within your leadership levels. And so it does become a situation and a conversation of how are you prioritizing the representation that's missing from your organization, including your, your key senior um, levels in the organization? So a really, a really important conversation. Yeah. Yeah, thank, thank you for that, for that question, Ursula. 
Thank you, Ursula. I appreciate that. Okay, we um, we have time for more questions. Who else would like to um, present a question right now? Feel free to unmute yourself or raise your hand so I can call on you and spotlight you. Okay, so we're watching the chat as well. And so if you're still thinking about the question or the contributions you would like to make to this discussion, then we will circle back to that in just a second. I wanna to go to another question now, Alanike. And so um, this, is, this is a question that may be a little um, unconventional from perhaps what you are used to speaking on, but I think we need to go there. Can you explain the paradox that you experience when helping workplaces to get better around their their maybe their lack mm. of intentionality for diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging, while also through this knowledge of the organization, feeling this strong urge and need to want to liberate some of their people <laughs> from the workplace. That a is get out really, moment. Get out. Yes, it's exactly <laughs> your get out moment. Let's talk about the paradox yes. of that. Yes, it's rough. It's rough because as a business, right? And I've contracted with yes. the workplace, with the company. Granted, they know that I'm going to speak truth to power. Like I'm going to say the thing and you're not going to censor me and all. And like, that's clear. Um, but there's a, there's a thick line between that and saying, quit your job. They're not going to do, they're not going to do right. <laughs> like that's just, yeah. Yeah. not doing that. Right. But I've had those moments, right. Where I'm like, where some, you know, there's an employee that's confiding Yes. In me about their leader and they're talking, they're telling us what's going on. And I'm like, oh my God, like what? Yeah. Um, okay. I, I feel like they probably can read between the lines, like this is bad. Um, but it's hard. And so I I've, I'm actually um I think I touched on this a little bit when I was talking about mentoring earlier, like someone who can mentor you and care about you above all Absolutely. right and so I'm getting into the space now where just in life where um I feel like depending on where the organization is where they are in terms of their maturity with doing equity work in their workplace that work is not always for the people that are in there right now today right right you know that you're planting seeds I use like gardening and, and nature analogies a lot <laughs> um you're planting seeds or, um, or maybe you're still like tilling the ground and preparing, figuring out like where you're going to plant the seed. And then you're gonna plant some seeds and then you gotta figure out how, how much to water it and what you need to do to prune whatever it is that you're, you know, the, the plant or whatever. It, like there is a whole process and you, you know, your, your labor might not yield fruit for another five years, right? right? You may mm -hmm. still continue to see that high, high um, turnover rate or low retention, whatever way you're tracking those numbers. Um, on your staff with your staff of color because it's too late for the people that work for you right now. And mm -hmm. I care about them as individuals being healthy and whole and not to you know continue to be harmed by an organization that it doesn't know how to protect them um, above all. And so that's the paradox. It's kind of like, they're not gonna get it right in the next six months or year. Like this is long-term work. Right. Um, and the company or the organization, if it's a nonprofit, um, can be doing everything you can. But if you're on the line and you're a leader in an organization and you're doing everything you can and people are still leaving, that's okay. They need to care for themselves. They need to take care of their, themselves and their mental health and, and be whole. You keep doing the work that you're doing because it will make a difference. You just yeah. have to give it time. 
No, absolutely. You have to give it time. Yes, you're. Sometimes we're just watering seeds. Sometimes it's not us to see it to its full maturation, right? We have to. We have to be okay with that and know that um, the yeah. work that we have done that moved it from point A to point B is still sufficient. And so I so appreciate yeah. that. I had someone to tell me early in my DEI um, career that if you're really doing this work well, especially if you're working within an organization, that typically around the five-year mark is where you should start to feel like, hmm, do I need to explore what's next? because usually mm. around that fifth year mark, you have uh, planted so many seeds that you have a sense of what could, could be from a future perspective. And because yes. typically by that point, you've ruffled enough feathers respectfully <laughs> to where you may need to move on. <laughs> because again, yes. to your point, for those of That's us that real. really care deeply about this work, we're not about diluting the work. We are going to speak truth Absolutely. to power. And, and I think that's so critical. So I wanna talk mm. about your TED talk. Right. I'm not seeing any hands okay. raised. So I'm gonna I'm gonna keep going in these last few minutes. But if you do have a question, raise that hand. Um, but I want to talk about your TED talk because it was it was very provocative. It was it was great. And um, it was about you being tired of basically diversity and inclusion. And you talked about how it has been hampered by whiteness and the big lie. So I want you to yeah. give us a little bit of premise of those sentiments and and really the core message of that TED talk. Yeah, the 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 thing that I realized is I kind of came in like everybody wants, you know, equity and inclusion, right? Like kumbaya, my lord. <laughs> We're all gonna get together and hold hands around the bonfire and it's all gonna be great in my youth <laughs> when I yeah, I've been I've been doing this work without calling it D DNI, right? Ever yeah. since because again, my life story, like this is just where I was drawn. Um, to advocate for anyone that I felt was marginalized wherever I was from the beginning um, of my career. Um, and so, um, yeah, the talk was really about reminding people um, that whiteness was a creation. It's not a thing. It's a construct. It right? is. And it was designed and marketed. It li whiteness literally had a PR team. Of yeah. pseudoscientists and pseudo, you know, psychologists that were writing books and, you know, the, the newspapers were printing things, you know, to make a case for whiteness. Um, and then there was this game of, you know, who, who could be white. There was a time when, when Irish people weren't white, they were in the ghetto with the black folks. Like they weren't accepted into whiteness either. Italians, like, Right. And now in my mind, you know, for, for anyone that's younger than me, you're probably like, what, how, what, what does that mean? That's, that goes to show you that whiteness is a, is a, is fake. Racial yeah. classification is fake, right? It's not a real thing, but mm -hmm. the impact of it because of that PR team, because of that marketing team, because of that sales job that they did when they told the lie that white was great, right. And, and better like white mm -hmm. is right. Um, the impact of it is what we have to live with now. And so it's really important. Sometimes when I wanna be really provocative, when I'm talking to people, to somebody that, that um, is presenting white or identifies as white, I'm like, you're not white. And they're like, what? I'm like, we're not white. <laughs> and they're like, what are you talking about? Like, what? You know, and then we can, we can get into that conversation, right? Like you are something else, right? You are Italian, Irish, like whatever. And there, there's some, you know, white folks deemed as white folks that still are in touch with their heritage more so than others but that's another that's another conversation so 
that's um, what the talk was about. The talk was about identifying that, giving a little bit of a history lesson about why whiteness was created. It was for power, right? Mm -hmm. It was for Absolutely. power building and wealth building. If we, you know, all the people that we're oppressing across race, across racial groups are starting to unite against the man, against the power structure. How can we divide and conquer? Hmm. Let's give some people access to whiteness, which at a time that meant you could vote, that meant you could have land, not to talk about the social ills that were happening, right, to people of color, but legally it meant something. It provided you perks and benefits that you did not otherwise have. Um, and so that's, that's really what the talk was like. I was trying to shine a light on that and to talk about how we really need to think about uh, DNI work beyond just diversity and inclusion. What we need to be talking about is equity. What we need to be talking about really is justice, right? Like let's acknowledge all this history and all the intention and intelligence, right? That went behind this lie to get us to where we are today so that we can really tackle it. Oh, that's so powerful. Historical context does have a place in this conversation today, whether people want to go there or not, it does. And we have to be willing to bring that to the conversation. You can't talk about equity without talking about power and without talking about whiteness and without talking about privilege. And so as uncomfortable as it may be for certain people, we have to go there. You know, I, I placed in the chat, whiteness has a PR team, but as you said, whiteness has a PR team, a marketing team, a sales team. A whole institution, y'all. Yes. Like Yes, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. That, oh, that, that really resonated. And so thank you. Okay. So we're running out of time. I have one final question and then I'm going to give you the final words to close this out in whatever way that feels appropriate. But uh, we've talked about your TED talk and also if the team can place um, your TED talk into the chat for this community, I think that will be very useful. Um, and then we've talked about your belonging survey report and tool and service that's coming out. You also have a podcast and it's entitled, So You Want to Be an Ally. So tell us about that. Season one, not sure when season two is coming out because life <laughs> is lifing. But um, a good friend of mine, um, we were actually college roommates um, and post-college roommates for a little while, um, Dr. Davis, um, good wine, she just got married. Um, um, and I have these conversations all the time. Like, this is just like, girl, what happened? Mm. <laughs> like, and we were like, we should do a podcast. Like, let's talk about this. Because what would happen is I would come at the conversation from my like DEI consulting lens and yes. she's a psychologist and she's the one that said a microaggression is racial trauma. It's abuse. And I was like, well, say more. And she was like, well, these, this is what we talk about when we're talking about abuse and trauma. How is that different from what's happening to us? Mm -hmm. Like we would, we were just having these conversations on the phone while we were talking about, you know, our kids and our husbands and everything else. And we we're like, we should do a podcast. So that's what it is. It's um, very conversational. We didn't do like a ton of editing and polishing because we wanted it to feel like you're eavesdropping on two girlfriends having conversations about these topics, which is what it is. Um, and so season one, I think we have eight or 10 episodes. Um, we do have two episodes on microaggression, if that's a topic that you're interested in. Um, we talk about like in the invisibility of black women. We talk about raising children. Um, she's got a, a son, I've got a daughter. Um, they're actually pretty close in age. Um, mm -hmm. And so we've gone through like, how do we prepare them for the world that they're going right. to meet? And how, what are the differences between raising her son and my daughter? And like, so you just, you, you get to listen in on that. Um, and so that's what that, that's what that Love is. 
So you want to be yeah. an ally. So the link is in the chat. We hope that you all will check that out, all the episodes that are out there. And um, because this conversation was just so amazing and insightful, we're going to keep our fingers crossed that a, maybe a, a, a part two of the, um, the podcast is going to be released at some point. So no pressure. <laughs> all right. We're at the top of the hour. I have so enjoyed this conversation. Thank you all so much for joining us, for being a part of this community. If you found this to be valuable, then certainly share it out with others. I want to close by giving you the final um, space to share whatever is coming up for you that you want to leave this audience with. Alanika, thanks for being here with us. Thank you for having me. Um, I think I'll just close by saying that having recently, my husband is Ghanaian, and having recently moved back back to the continent and to Ghana, um, um, I'm really just reminded even more so than I think when I was living everyday life in the States, how much um, white supremacy and, and, and um, uh, how colonialism here on the continent has played out and how I always talk about just because of my life experience, how inequity and injustice is a global issue, but living here in the day-to-day -day and seeing how it shows up here, even when most of us look like me, yeah. it's just like, wow, wow. Like they really did a number on the planet. Mm. Um, and so I just want to remind everyone and I'm talking to everyone um, that it really is a human issue. It's about power and dominance, right? And so in whatever ways that you can show up again in your sphere of influence or control um, in increasingly equitable ways, which usually means sharing power, <laughs> opting out of fear uh, and scarcity mindset and sharing power and being in community and relationship with each other and being open um, to learn and evolve and always having that curious stance. Um, if we all just did that, the world would be a better place. And I'm still, you know, I'm still, you know, hoping for that um, kumbaya <laughs> world to happen. It's not gonna, I don't, it's not gonna happen in my lifetime, I don't think. But um, I think there are enough of us now that are sort of realizing that we have to be intentional um, and we can rebuild, we can dismantle systems and rebuild systems. People, human beings like us, like you and me did this, yeah. right? We have the history, at least parts of the history to know that this was an intentional effort. And so that means we can do something different. We can make a different choice. And so that's what I'm hoping to do in my life and in my work. And I just um, wanna take the opportunity to like recruit more people <laughs> to join to join the, 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 the crew of you know, light bringers and to like wherever you find yourself on the planet, Amsterdam, Atlanta. I saw Lexington, I went to college in Frankfurt whoever is on the line from Lexington I went to KSU um so yeah let's let's go out there and um and make a change yep join the movement thank you so much everyone enjoy your weekend and we look forward to seeing you back here next Friday for Intentional Conversations podcast bye-bye take good care <laughs>